uh, I would invite you this evening to turn in your Bibles to the ninth chapter of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 9. This evening we're going to come to the poem, the poetic section found in verse 17 to verse 22, and then there's a couple, actually those are two sections, one that's addressed to the skillful women who mourn, and then another word that's addressed to just the women in general. Uh, 17 to 19 is the skillful women, we'll talk about them, and then the general women, their instruction to give to their daughters, verse 20 to verse 22. And then that's followed by two prose oracles, one of them I think we're rather familiar with, verses 23 and verse 24. Uh, about letting the wise man boast in his wisdom or the mighty man in his might or the rich man in his riches but he who boasts will boast in this that uh, I am the Lord who practices love, justice, righteousness in the earth Uh, he that understands and knows the Lord who exercises justice and love and righteousness in the earth and then another prophecy in verse 25 about the days coming when it's not going to be material if you're circumcised or uncircumcised that the nations that are uncircumcised are under the judgment of God Israel is uncircumcised in heart and all these things seem ideas that are desperately separated from one another by miles actually I think within the context they do relate uh, to one another we'll try to see that again I'm going to remind you that when you encounter the poetry of the book of Jeremiah there's a lot more ambiguities and questions and metaphors and just things that sometimes boggle the mind and you scratch your head you say perhaps I don't get it and a lot of times it's the prose sections the stuff that's not in poetic form that is really helpful giving a sense of the direction in which the prophet is going. Uh, Again, the uh, previous section before verse 17, uh, verse uh, 12 uh, to verse 14, uh, I'm sorry, to verse 16, is uh, is a section that that really does address what's happening. Uh, And again, it's hard to know exactly what period of time Jeremiah is stating these prophecies or giving these prophecies to Israel. Because we don't have time markers like we do in Ezekiel, for instance. Um, we don't have uh, references to that in the year that King Uzziah died for instance as Isaiah gives you um, you just have prophetic oracles and prophetic words that come one after another after another after another we're the basic thematic unity again I think this whole first section is addressing the the fact that the nation is at the point where judgment is the last resort, but the only resort. How else will God be God and not judge a nation such as this who have done the things that they have done? What else can I do? Is what the Lord complains. Um, because of the sins of the people. And that's really explicated really firmly in verses 12 to verse 16. Uh, who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? Right at that point, you kind of think, well, maybe, maybe the Babylonian invasion has already taken place. Maybe um, the ruin has already come. The invading armies have already devastated the uh, countryside and the towns and the cities and come to devastate the city of Jerusalem as well. Um, but it's also possible that Jeremiah may be speaking in a kind of 
figure of speech that prophets or at least we attribute to them is what's called the prophetic perfect. What the prophetic prophetic perfect is simply this, that the prophet is stating future things that are so absolutely certain, so sure, because again, he's God's prophet, and God's given him these words about the future, that he can actually state them as accomplished realities. So it may well be that this is still stuff that happens in Jeremiah's ministry prior to the Babylonian invasion, and yet he's presenting it in such a way that it's absolutely certain. One of the reasons the prophets might be doing this is because there's a general sort of skepticism that the people of the land have with respect to what this prophet's telling them. They have other prophets that are telling them a better message, a message more congenial to their desires and their likings. They're the false prophets that are coming to say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Don't take Jeremiah seriously. He's just a a dour sort of prophet who has uh, negativity coming out of every poor. But but actually, things are not that bad. And besides, we've got the temple. And besides, we have the covenant. And besides, we have the kingdom. We have the Davidic king. Uh, Really, it cannot be the way Jeremiah is presenting it. And there's all these these matters of, of just illusions that the nation is under that has to be shattered. Now one of the ways the prophet seeks to shatter these false ideas, these false illusions that the people are just uh, have, 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 have taken is almost axiomatic, is almost, yeah, these guys are right and Jeremiah is wrong, is that he will speak in the fact that the land's gone, it's devastated, the city is destroyed. This is a time for mourning. This is a time for the recognition that the judgment of God has come and the people have been taken into exile and the earth is returned to Tohu Vamohu, as he says in chapter 4, without form and void. Darkness is upon the face of the deep. The judgment of God has come. And in that section that precedes the portion we look at this morning, um, the, the, the question is raised, why? Why? Is the land ruined and waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? Why? Why has that happened? Why has God done this? And again, there's no question as to God's reason. The Lord says, Because they've forsaken my law that I set before them. They've ignored my Torah. They've ignored my commandments. They've ignored my instruction, my teaching, the things I have shown them, the love I have displayed to them, the things I have done for them in delivering them from Egyptian bondage and making them my own people. All that's bound up in divine instruction, they've simply rejected. They've not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own heart and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, says Yahweh of armies, the Lord of hosts, the Lord who has the armies of heaven at his disposal, who is the God who controls all of the events of human history. Therefore, this God says, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food, give them poisonous water to drink, and I will scatter them among the nations. So it appears that they're not quite yet scattered, but at certain points it seems like they are. At certain points it seems like the land has been taken over and devastated. The houses are ruined and the, all this uh, uh, destruction has come. And I think that might well be because of this prophetic per- perfect that projects these future things and brings them near so that the people will have something of their illusion shattered. 
But then this poetic portion comes in, and I think it's a matter of more of this desire uh, on Jeremiah's part to simply shatter the false notions that the people have. And he paints this vivid picture in this poetic section, this vivid picture of calling for the mourners. And it's calling for the mourners both in two respects. First of all, those that are professional mourners. Um, again, many cultures have had this, I think, in the Scottish culture. They call them keeners. And if you have a relative that died and you think, well, uh, Uncle, Uncle Angus was just not the, the favorite of many people, and who's going to come to his wedding anyway? But we want to have the funeral procession from the church to the cemetery. So you hire on the professional mourners. They're skilled in doing this. They know how to cry. They know how to weep. And the professional mourners come first, and they lead the way. And others enter into the wailing and the weeping and the crying. So I think you see this in the Gospels on a couple of occasions. When Jesus went into the house of uh, Jairus and when his daughter was dying and you had the, the, the sound of loud weeping and wailing. Hey, the professional mourners had come. I'm, I'm sure there were relatives also very distraught and very disheartened. But it was likely that the professional mourners were there because Jesus doesn't seem to engage them in a way that's... Uh, uh, looking to calm their their troubled souls because these people are being paid to do this. These people have a skill. They have a skill set that they are exhibiting in, in this morning. And so he basically uh, he reproves them. Why is this morning going on? You know, just cease this noise and, you know, this woman is, is alive. It just doesn't seem like they're very uh, tender words that Jesus speaks to them. It's rather on the borders of the, of the, of the harsh uh, uh, rebuke. But anyway, this is my opinion as I read the passage. There's also that section when he turns in his own uh, uh, way at the Villa Dolorosa when he's going to the cross that he turns and hears these weeping women. These weeping women. Were they his followers who loved him and were weeping? Um, no, they were probably professional mourners just hired on. Uh, someone's being executed so uh, they're, they're called to, to, to apply their trade. They're called to bring their skill set to bear uh, as someone is led out to, 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 to the execution. And um, Jesus turns and says to them, uh, weep for yourselves, basically, and for the evils that will come upon you. It's inappropriate to weep for me. Um, so I think you have these professional mourners. They come into play numerous times in the uh, New Testament, in the Old Testament as well. There's a section in uh, Amos chapter 5 that seems to call these professional mourners to again come in and lament and to weep. And Ecclesiastes 12 has a section that addresses uh, the same, the similar things. Um, so again, these are uh, people that in the presence of death, when a death has taken place, uh, are called in to do the service of mourning. And um, God is calling for such a group of people to come to the fore. This is now the time for a funeral. There's a death that has taken place. Consider and call for the mourning women to come. Again, the people of the land that Jeremiah is ministering to, they don't think the city is going to die. They don't think the nation is going to be destroyed. They don't think it's time for funerals. 
they, they're looking for the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness that Jeremiah says, no, no, that's ceasing. The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. It's not wedding time anymore. It's funeral time. And the mourning women are to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. And again, there's a language has come before. Jeremiah is one who seems to be weeping for the nation. God is one who is also in some measure seen as weeping for the nation. But in any case, this is not to any avail. It's not going to avert the death that's coming. It's not going to avert the destruction that's coming. The sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How are we ruined? There are some commentators that think that this is the outlying areas that are being destroyed. No, I think it's Zion. It's the central citadel of the nation. The central place of their worship. This mount, the mount upon which the temple was built and the king's palace was built. That's where the sound of wailing is emanating from. The cry goes out, how are we ruined? We are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. The city is under siege. The city is being destroyed. Think of the houses that have been utterly destroyed on that island in Maui. Lahana, I think it's called. And very little is left. I think there was one guy that the Times did an article about because he took a a hose just before the alarm was out to to leave and to flee. He he took a hose and he hosed down his house. And uh, in some measure, much of his house was spared. Uh, But others had no time to do that. The alarms did not go off. And everything was devastated. And there's weeping, there's wailing, there's, there's the sense that our city now is gone. It's it's never it's over. It's past. Its history is is over. It's dead. And such was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was going to die. At least old Jerusalem, the Jerusalem they knew, the Jerusalem of Solomon's temple, the Jerusalem of David's palace, or Solomon's palace. It, it's over. It's done. It's a vivid picture of the death of the city and the funeral rites that follow. Again, this wailing of these skillful women tell us that this death is official. It's official. You call out the weeping women when it's official. When the coroner's given his report, when the death has transpired, it's official. It's public. It's out in the open. And it's massive. It's massive in its scope. They come to begin the public rituals for mourning. The public display of the funeral rites over the city. The death of the city has occurred. It's not just the public ritual, the public official in massive destruction that takes place for which skillful leaders in wailing are, are called for. But then there's a word that's given not to the skilled women, not the people that do this for a living, 
We're just the people who are the citizens of the of the city. These are the people who are just the women who dwell in the city. Here are women, not skillful women at this point. The word of the Lord. Let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament. Again, this is not wedding time. This is funeral time. You teach your daughters to lament the city. To sing the dirge. Each to his neighbor a dirge. Again, death has taken place. The city in general. But yet every resident of the city is going to be impacted. Every resident of the city. Even the people that are taken into exile. The people in their families who have perished. People in their neighborhoods who have perished. Destruction, the sword, the famines, the pestilence, the disease that's going to come upon the city in the aftermath of this invasion. Death is going to come to every family, to every home. And this is the picture of it. For death has come up into our windows. It's entered into our palaces. And then seems to be the picture of all strata of society have been affected. The palaces of, of the nobles and of the kings and of the leaders and of the elders and of the rich and of the mighty. Death has entered into those homes. But death has entered into our windows of every simple person. Cutting off the children from the streets. The young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares Yahweh. The dead bodies of men shall fall. And then there's the picture of there being so massive a destruction. And so massive a toll of the dead. That there's not even sufficient ability to bury them. Their bodies lay out in the open. And none shall gather them. Is how it concludes. Again, dark and dismal picture. But again, it's, paint, it's a picture that's painted to, again, strip away the illusions, to shatter the illusions, to make them come to the recognition that this is a judgment God will bring. And it's not a fairy tale. It's not just, a, uh, it's not just something that people are using uh, to get you upset or angry or whatever people want to do to manipulate other people. <laughs> that stuff is done all the time. You, you have the internet, you know. <laughs> all the things that are said, all of the reports, all of the fears that end up coming to nothing. This is not anything that's coming to nothing. This is coming to Babylonian chariots and steel and, and armed booted soldiers that are going to come and traipse through the land and bring their destruction so that the city will perish. The old city of Jerusalem is done for and weeping and wailing is the order of the day. You wonder how people receive that word. You wonder how people responded to this word that Jeremiah spoke in these poetic sections. Maybe they were unmoved. Maybe they said just a bunch of sour Negativity on the part of Jeremiah, and these things will not come about. But Jeremiah did his best to strip off 
the illusions, to endeavor to paint the picture, to bring them to see reality. I forgot who it was that said to me this morning, we deal in realities in this church. We don't deal, I think it was you, Ed. He said, we deal in realities in this church. We don't look to just, you know, sugarcoat stuff. You know? Pastor needs to know this, 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 and this. And he's going to give me the, the news straight, full, straight out. You know, the medicine without the little bit of sugar that helps the medicine to go down. We're just going to get it straight as it is. Well, Jeremiah gave it to them straight as it is. There's no reason for optimism. There's no reason for false hopes. Their optimism should be shattered. Their false hopes should be done. Their trust in other things, it's all illusion. And those illusions will just be stripped away when the Babylonians come. And they ought to be stripped away because God's prophet has told you in this prophetic perfect exactly what will be. And then you have these words that follow in the prose. And these words that follow in the prose, again, uh, some commentators look at this and say, well, how's this related? Uh, this is something that came from some other source and kind of got uh, cut and pasted here. <laughs> Maybe it didn't really belong. Uh, I don't think it was cut and pasted, well it may have been cut and pasted from some other other, other, other source but, but it fits in well as all these parts of Jeremiah fit in well uh, to tell a story, a narrative uh, um, an understanding of the things that God says that will be and it's because they're filled with these false hopes and false trusts that they don't think these things are going to happen why? because they have wise men in their city who've told them differently they have other sages they've listened to and they have believed they have mighty men who are men of war men who've experienced combat they've come back with a report our military leaders say no worry, no fear whatever happens with the Babylonians we'll be able to handle it then you have the rich folks the people with abounding riches you think they ought to know they're wealthy, they got wealth well, you know, let's trust them, let them be our leaders and what Jeremiah designs to do is to bring them to see that none of those things will bring any help or refuge or solution to the problem at hand this is just more magical thinking this is more thinking that if we only look to the wise men and the mighty men and the rich men of our nation that everything will be well and so he says let not the wise man boast in his wisdom again you got these wise men back in chapter 8 to whom Jeremiah addresses and he addresses them in this way in chapter 8 and verse 8 he says how can you say we are wise and the law of Yahweh is with us. But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame, and they shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of Yahweh. So what wisdom is in them? They're the reputed sages, but they're fools. 
They've rejected the true source of wisdom. They've rejected the word of Yahweh. How can you find wisdom in a group of guys like that? They're making it up as they go along. They're concocting their own reality. We live in a world of people that are experts. They have their learned degrees after their names. They have their television shows and their radio shows and their podcasts and they're putting out their insights as to what reality is. But if they're those who have not rejected, who have rejected God's counsel, if they're not speaking according to this word, Isaiah says there's no mourning for them. There's no hope in them. There's no comfort found from them. They're not going to be preparing you for what's to come. You're going to go into this whole, your whole future completely unprepared. Wonderful thing about being a follower of Jesus. There's nothing that happens in our life experience that our Lord has not told us we'll experience in a fallen world. And yet he's not sugarcoated the reality of it. In the world you will have tribulation. Fear not, I've overcome the world. And his promise is that in the midst of the tribulation, in the midst of the trials, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's the trouble with you, you know, the people of the world that try to sell you a gospel of wealth and health and prosperity and a trouble-free life and become a Christian. And, you know, you know it's like people that sell you land in Florida or <laughs> swampland. People look to sell you a bridge in Brooklyn. My grandfather already bought that, so it's in my family. No, it's lies. It's delusion. And yet there are so many people that will buy into those lies and their delusions, those delusions. But there's no wisdom that could ever be in them when there is the wholesale rejection of the word of the living God. They can only speak forth lies. Don't trust in the wisdom of those who are imputed to be wise, whose counsel is not consistent with the word of God's truth. The blessed man is the one who does not follow the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scoffer but his delight is in the law of Yahweh to be instructed by Yahweh to have Yahweh's truth frame our understanding of the world in which we live to frame our understanding of the trials and troubles that we experience in this life God has a word for every situation now I'm not so much in favor of you know having those Bibles that will tell you well you know if something happens in your life that you know you're fearful here's a group of scriptures I just think you know it's not you know shotgun approaches to scripture that's going to save you in the hour of trouble it's the reality of scripture's testimony that's ever leading you to a deeper commitment to and trust in and reliance upon the God who is all sufficient who is really going to help us in a time of trouble Um, so don't trust don't put your trust in the reputed wisdom of wise men whose wisdom really comes from their own brains and comes from their own minds but does not come from the word of God And then don't trust in the mighty man who boasts in his might. He may have an army that he says will support him. He may have a militia that has about abundant munitions. He may have all manner of things and say, trust in me and I will protect you. Your protection is not found in in princes. It's not found in human uh, armament. Trust not in horses and chariots. 
Put your trust in the Lord, your God. Uh, Psalm 20, I believe, says that. Don't trust in chariots. Don't trust in horses. Make your trust and confidence to be uh, the Lord. And don't... Don't let the, the rich man who boasts in his riches, don't let him be your confidence. Don't let him be your trust. Don't let him be the one who leads you astray to think that just material wealth and prosperity is going to be the answer to all of you the, of human dilemmas. Again, I love what the word says. I think it's in the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, I forget which, about how riches take wings to themselves and fly away. I guess I've never had the, 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 the experience of having riches to see them fly away, but Scripture tells me they, they do. There is the uncertainty of riches. Paul counsels the rich, those who are rich in this age, not to put their confidence in the uncertainty of riches. Don't trust in what tomorrow you could lose in its entirety, but to trust in the living God. whose word is unfailing whose help is ever present who will never abandon us as his people and so let none of these things be the point of your confidence and of your trust let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me that he understands and knows me and again we're back into the early sections where God complains of the people they do not know me and they do not want to know me our wisdom is found not in human wisdom our strength is found not in human might our abundance is found not in human riches but it's an understanding and knowing who God is that I am Yahweh that I am the God of Israel, that I am the God who is ever-living and everlasting. I am the God whose promises do not fail, the God who watches over his word to perform it. I am the God who, who practices, he says, steadfast love. Again, that's that love, that's the chesed love of God that knows no end. It's dependable. It's, it's, you can take it to the bank because it will never fail us. And he's the God who practices justice. And justice is not just that he destroys his enemies. Justice is that he cares for his own. That he, he provides for their needs. He gives them what... what, what um, he, it's, that, it's that generous justice that meets the poor with riches. That meets the afflicted with, with help that meets the sick with healing, that meets the, 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 the lonely with his fellowship and his presence, and the, the sad, those who are sad with, with the joys of his presence and of his grace. That's a, that's a generous, gracious form of divine justice that meets his people with fullness and with abundance, and that he practices righteousness in the earth bringing his people to right relation and right living and right understandings and doing and bringing really turning all that's wrong right, making it right all that's so twisted and distorted and, and wrong God's going to set it to rights he's in the business of bringing everything to its rights even the creation itself that he'll bring into the liberty of the children of God and that there will be the uh, the, 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 the well, 
hymn writer says, the land of pure delight with, with saints of mortal reign. Um, God says, in these things I delight. And so, again, in the midst of what is illusory, let's replace it with what is real, what is genuine, what is unfailing, what is certain. That's the living God. That's making Him our confidence and Him our trust. To make Him the source of our wisdom, the source of our strength, and the the source of our provision, and our riches, and our wealth. That consists in the fact that He's at work in the world, practicing steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. And He calls us to engage in the same practices as well. Uh, to love as he loves and to be just as he's just and to be righteous as he is righteous and these things the Lord says I delight but then there's another part of the picture and again it's the part of the picture in which the trust of the people was not only in their reputedly wise men and in their seemingly wealthy people and in their powerful people but it was also in their rituals it was also in their external place of position seemingly before the Lord and, and the final word is that those illusions will simply not count for anything the time is coming the days are coming declares the Lord when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh Again, that was the point of Israel's confidence. We're the circumcised. We're the, we're the children of Abraham. We're the heirs of the promises. He's promised us this land. Promised it to our, our forefathers. He's promised that we will not be destroyed by these uncircumcised hordes. That God's made a distinction and is based in the ritual that's found in our flesh. God speaks then of the nations. He's going to talk more about the nations in chapter 10. The nations and all of their accumulated folly in their practices of idolatry. He speaks of Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. And that seems to indicate they're not into cutting foreskins. (laughs) They're cutting the corners of their hair is what they're doing. Um, For all those nations are uncircumcised. All those nations are beyond the pale of the covenant. And yet the time is coming when those people are going to be incorporated right within the covenant. Because it's not going to be based upon just the external ritual in the flesh. For though they are uncircumcised, God says all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So what's the real difference? What's the real difference between these people reputed to be God's people, who they claim to be the covenant people, when the reality is, though they are circumcised merely in the flesh, there's not been that regenerating work of God in the heart. There's not been that cutting away of the foreskin of the heart. There's not been the dealing with the hardness of the human heart. They're just like the idolatrous nations that surround them. Another level of illusion stripped away. One after another after another 
after another. As the time is coming when the only important thing is going to be whether we have experienced and known the circumcision of the heart. And in a real sense, this is a generation of people that will never begin to have dealings with God at a heart level until they are devastated, until they are experiencing the reality of God's word of coveted curse coming upon them in full measure through the Babylonian invasion. And wonder of wonders, that's going to be the refining fire in which God's going to purify people for himself. The people who will come back chastened, the people who will come back no longer engaged in the idolatrous practices of the nations. Now there may be faults you'll find in that generation that will come back to the land, but the same faults are not going to be there. There's going to be a people who will come from death to life again, who will come back to the land, and ultimately there's going to be a people who will come to fullness of life through the one who comes and says, I have come that they might have life and they might have it in abundance. The one who truly does bring life from death. The one who is the resurrection and the life. That again, the future hope is, is not the restoration of the people from captivity. Because in a real sense, they're still captives of Persia. They're still captives of Greece. They're still captives of Rome. It's not until Jesus comes that true liberation comes. That the true captivity is, is, is ended. Then God's people come forth into the fullness of a freedom that liberates the heart brings the liberation of the sons of God and the true freedom that's really the freedom from condemnation the freedom from servitude to sin this freedom from um, the true enemies which is not merely human empire it's the power behind the thrones of human empire the world, the flesh and the devil it's Jesus' work of redemption that ultimately is the liberating power, is the resurrecting power, is the power of the new creation. But God is telling us, put away all other illusions, all other hopes that are false. They won't avail to give aid and help in the hour of trouble. Only he, he, the, the God of Israel himself, making him our confidence, our wisdom, our riches, our defense, making him the focus of the work of grace within our hearts. Only he can provide these things for us. And only he is worthy of full and wholehearted trust. That's Jeremiah's message to the people facing the trauma, facing the devastation of the Babylonian captivity. Hope in God. For I will yet praise him who is my help and my salvation. Let's look to him together as we go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful that in the midst of a dismal, horrible circumstance of life that Jeremiah and the nation of Judah were passing through, there is still hope to be found in you. There is still confidence that we can derive from a relationship with you in which we make you our hope, our confidence, our trust, that we make you our boast. We don't boast in illusions. We don't boast in lies. We don't boast in deceptive dreams. We boast in a God of truth, a God who comes with realities that um, never can be diminished or taken from us. 
for it's your wisdom that we look to it's your strength that we look to it's your riches that we look to it's the reality of your grace and salvation that we look to these imperishable realities and we're thankful Lord that we can base our lives firmly upon not delusions and lies and fantasies but on the reality of who you are of your sure and certain promises of, of your covenant grace that will never fail us and for these mercies we bless you we thank you we can be together again today on another Lord's Day that we can know uh, something of the reality of your grace and presence and know something of the reality of the goodness of your word be pleased to dismiss us with your blessing and that we would go into the days that are before us in this coming week uh, rejoicing in who you are making you our confidence making you our boast and we pray you provide for us every needed thing and you'd enable us in all circumstances and situations to prove out the reality of your promises to your people that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us so hear our prayers bless your people we pray as we ask these things in Jesus name Amen